Hey everyone, welcome to episode six of Browsers Tech and Beyond. Today we're going to be talking about fun stuff in browser land, specifically some ways you can get knowledge in browsers. Also talking about the different innovations happening with browsers from new browsers to old ones wanting to be new. We're going to be talking about how platforms can be hostile towards browser extensions. And finally, we'll wrap it up with some fun AI topics with that. I'm here with my co-hosts, Mo and Lewis. How are you guys doing today? Good. Good. How are you? Doing well. I'm doing great. I'm really excited. Specifically, like the biggest thing I'm excited about is it seems like every day we're seeing a new browser. There was this one thing I saw on GitHub that blew my mind. Sometimes when you go on like github.com, you'll see things that are trending or things that your friends have starred or forked or whatever. And I found this one thing that was insane. Someone managed to get Chromium to work in their terminal. Mm-hmm. The way it works is it draws, like it paints on the screen, um, basically what Chromium would show you. So if you look at the actual demo video, you'll see that it's straight up like showing you a Wikipedia page, but it's all drawn on your terminal. It seems like it's running Chromium, maybe like a headless version of Chromium in the background that's not visible to the user, I would guess. And then it's mapping the pixels from the headless Chromium window onto the terminal. And it comes out as a much less resolution picture, but that's still really cool. Do you think that's how they're doing it? That's how before he made this browser? was actually an HTML to SVG drawing. So mm-hmm. it's actually translated from HTML to SVG pixel first. Uh, that was the first plugin that he created to rent basically uh, the idea to render everything from to SVG. And then okay. now from SVG, render that into Axie, into terminal coordinate. Okay, okay. So he's, so he's not using the pixels from, from the headless Chrome that he's running. He's using no. the HTML. There's just straight up HTML, probably converting it to, to SVG and then to ASCII. In this browser, he actually rendered the real text, right? Because he translated HTML to SVG and SVG can have text, textual data. The guy's looking for, I think he's looking for a job. So if anyone would hire the guy, go for it. Wow. Yeah. You think anyone's going to use this in a real it will be helpful in situations where you don't have an X server running on a Linux machine yep. that you're like SSHing into and you want the access to a browser for some reason. And obviously this wouldn't be something that you would use every day and stuff like that. But like in certain cases where you want a browser because you need something and there is no X11 server, you can use this. I, that's like, how like, I would imagine. Imagine you're Snowden, you find the access to CIA, and then you're like, oh, I need a Chrome browser to browse through these files. There are too many files. Yeah. So do, I don't know if you guys know, this is just like a tangent, but Emacs also has a browser built into Emacs. I guess mm-hmm. also if you want to use, so I don't know, I imagine with this, you can somehow embed the browser into Vim. So now Vim is like feature parity with Emacs. So that's another benefit. But yeah, in the never ending war of Emacs versus Vim. Uh, VS Code also has a browser. Oh, VS Code is a browser too, bro. Yeah, because yeah. it's ele- Electron, right? Browser within the browser. Damn, that's meta. That's Electron coming full circle. I know. 
Awesome. Yeah, and wait, also, isn't VS Code embeddable as well? It is embeddable, yeah. So you can okay, have so a browser and a browser and a browser. Exactly. Yeah, I, the thing is, so what happened is VS Code, the core editor is Monaco. Monaco is separate. You can host Monaco. Monaco is like a component, right? You can think of it as a component. You can mount a component onto any web front, web web view, basically. And Electron is your easier web view. That's so the sick. desktop wrapper that we have on the desktop app is just the Electron wrapper that has a Monaco editor inside. But you can have Monaco, the Monaco component, render on a web page. Yeah, and so, one of the one of the things like uh, that I've been thinking about a lot recently is this idea of when we, for example, you ask anyone like, hey, you need to build a browser. And the first thing they're going to say is, okay, where, how can I get started with Electron? That's how I would think about stuff. But there is this browser that I just found out about. And obviously we talked about Sigma OS a lot as well. But this one is another one where it's actually with WebKit. Paso is powered by WebKit. You no, know, I find it really fascinating that there's two browsers that are powered by WebKit, and there's probably more that I don't even know about. But Which two browsers are you talking about? So Sigma OS and and Orion. Do you guys think this is a this is an overall trend that we're seeing, where a lot of software is moving away from Electron? Like, okay, so yeah. based on your guys's responses, the question was terrible. So the question in my mind is the fact that these two browsers exist. Sigma OS and Orion, these yeah. the WebKit-based browsers, okay. The fact that they use WebKit is a sign of an overall trend that Electron is dying. I, I don't think so. It, okay. It could be. I don't think so directly because these are two separate things. Orion and Sigma OS are browsers that, that render web pages, whatever the user wants to go to, like Google.com or YouTube.com. But Electron is used to build desktop apps using web technologies. Now, yeah, under the hood uses Chromium, which is slower in performance and more and more resource intensive. So it drains your battery faster in comparison to WebKit, the other browser engine made by Apple. Just because people are building browsers with WebKit, I don't see that as a sign, like direct sign saying that Electron is fading away, but I could see a an electron alternative for building a desktop apps using the WebKit engine rather than Chromium. Rather than using the browser, using rather than using the Chromium browser engine, use the WebKit browser engine. Because uh, at least on Mac OS devices, it's more performance, it's less resource intensive. So it's faster and it uses less battery life. But is WebKit from, available? Is WebKit available for non- Mac OS? Yes. It, yes. And you it can is? run okay. WebKit. Yeah. Yeah. You can. I don't know if Safari, if there's a Safari app out there that made for Windows, but I do know that you can run WebKit on Windows. WebKit even runs on the PlayStation, PlayStation devices as well. So okay. yeah. So it actually powers, I'm not sure if it powers the whole UI for the PlayStation, like main menu and stuff like that. But I do know at least it does power the web browser that's in the PlayStation devices. The actual web browser, yeah. So it is multi-platform. It is a multi-platform browser engine. 
Yeah, and it's so PlayStation is not the only one. Like Wii U, for example, use, also uses WebKit for their web browser as well. And lots yeah. of TV applications and lots of TV web browsers use WebKit as well. Yeah, um, and it's it, whenever there is like a WebKit exploit, all of the people that have these consoles rejoice because that means that they can finally jailbreak them. Uh, there was this, yeah, like it's amazing because there's this like a lot of. For example, there's this Wii U jailbreak, or they call it homebrew, where all you got to do is go to this one URL, and that's it. It will automatically jailbreak your Wii U because of a WebKit exploit. It's like a remote code execution exploit. So yeah, that's why I know that. But I didn't know the PlayStation was also using WebKit. That's super cool. Right, I know, right. I feel like most of them are moving over to Chrome because of WebKit is still, for some reason, a lot of the feature of WebKit, WebKit isn't the one problem with WebKit, is it like feature? That's that that is true, Lewis. They are a little slow in in adopting the web standards. They lag a little behind in comparison to Chromium. And that's been a struggle for us and Sigma OS as well, because we want Chrome extensions to work on our WebKit based browser, but API lots, like of, lots of times those Chrome extensions are expecting to use Chrome APIs that are available on Chrome, but have not been implemented in WebKit yet. So they are, they, that is an issue, but they are doing better. This week, they actually just released two big features that we've been waiting for that lots of Chrome extensions use, and that's the off-screen canvas and support for the behind regex assertion. But these are things that have been implemented in Chrome for at least a couple of years now. So th that is, like you said, that is definitely an issue with WebKit and why, and could be why it has been adopted to something like Electron, at least into the mainstream. Do you think but the reason... Yeah, go ahead. I think one of the main reasons why people, a lot of the web platform, a lot of the, sorry, not web platform, but like proprietary device like to use WebKit, is probably because the like of, probably also because of, of the API too, actually. Yeah, it allowed them to the... control it how to control the platform. For example, PlayStation did not want people to make web game at all for a while. They want, and a lot, of, and people were complaining why the browser is so shitty and couldn't even render this game on the web browser. So I, Louis, I have a different hypothesis. Okay. I think likely WebKit is just way easier to be embedded. I played a lot of games on my Wii when I was in middle school that were Flash games. So I think like WebKit, like off-screen canvas and look behind regex and stuff, like I don't think that's going to necessarily impact people's playing games and stuff on the browser. I guess. But no, but game is supported though. The game is all available. But it is, right? What well, games are not available though? No, back then. This, I'm talking about 2012, 2010. Yeah, dude, I played so many Flash games back then. Flash game? On yeah. those browser? On Wii, yes. I played a really ton. Now. Yeah. Okay. Like, I would, how, about issue, yeah. how about HTML5 game? I'm talking about HTML5 game that using HTML5 cat API. So HTML5 sure, wasn't around game. back then, so I have no idea. But Flash worked. Okay. Interesting. I believe, yeah. Um, I actually, I didn't know that Flash worked. At least on the PSP. That wasn't the case at all. It was very poorly supported, yeah. Like... There was this, like, talking about, like, old browsers, right? We're going from new to old. There was this phone that I wanted to specifically get that was the only phone on the market that supported Flash in their browser. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to get this phone just so I can play games. And it's so fascinating. I feel like this is what you were talking about, right? This sort of buyer behavior, like, 
that was the biggest selling point for me at the time. Does this phone support Flash or not? Yeah. Wow. Uh, the, you, the question, your question, the original question is about really sparked an idea for me. I'm wondering why there isn't a, like a mainstream sort of alternative to Electron, but that uses WebKit because like I said, at least on macOS devices, it's so much more performant. It looks like, I just Googled it. It looks like there's something called nw.js. What did you and Google? I Googled Electron WebKit. Okay. And Wait, this NW used to be called Node WebKit, but now they changed the name to nw.js. Interesting. Yeah, I have it. We, I think we almost use it for binary. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder, you, we also have to think about the other end, right? Not the front end, but maybe a little bit of the sort of back end, which is like bun, right? That's all WebKit. It's really cool. What do you mean it's all WebKit? No, it's JS Core. That's yeah, yeah that's, that, that's what I mean. So it's like, using the JavaScript engine of WebKit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's right. like, basically, that's what I mean by back end. Like it's tying, I think it's going to significantly improve WebKit as a byproduct because it's using the same underlying technology. And right, a lot right. of these companies like Cloudflare and so on, where they want to have their worker runtime be using like something like Bun. Rather than Node.js or, like, or something. Yeah. So that's going to, I think that's going to significantly improve a WebKit as a byproduct. Just so like I, how Electron yeah. improves WebKit as a by. Uh, sorry, just like how Electron improves Chromium as a byproduct. Adopt, um, like adopting it? Yeah, adopting it or just support for it, just making it more popular, maybe bringing yeah. on more open source developers in the community and stuff like that. Definitely. And on top of that, like how Node improved Chrome or Chromium because Node runs on V8. Exactly. And yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Right. I think we're going to, honestly, if I were to make some prediction, I would say, and that's why I brought up these browsers, I see a lot of trends going towards wet, towards like betting on WebKit, betting on JavaScript core, betting on these like technologies and like shorting, if you want to use those terminology, shorting Chromium and so on. I, I feel like the future is going in another direction at the moment. For me, I think the important thing is, is not to have just one browser engine that dominates the market. I think it's important to have multiple and the competition is good for all of them because when you have a monopoly over a browser engine, just like with anything else, it leads to some negative consequences. For example, Apple only allows WebKit only as it only allows WebKit as to be used as a browser engine, and it doesn't allow any other browser engine to be used in its iOS apps. It doesn't allow Chromium nor Gecko or anything else. So, if you want to build a browser or if you want to render web pages in your iOS app, you have to use WebKit. So all the browsers on iOS devices use WebKit. And in the web community, this is looked down upon. Everyone hates this, that Apple does this. It's a very anti-competitive nature. Yeah. And having one, just one browser engine dominate the market would lead to more things like this in the future. So having competition, I think is great. And I think when Google forked WebKit back in 2013, I think, I think that was amazing. That was a pivotal moment for the web. Because ever since that point, there's like a competition began between WebKit and, and the fork of WebKit, which turned into Blink and Chromium. And that allowed the web as a whole platform to move much faster because of that competition.
WebKit wanted to be Chromium, Chromium yeah. wanted to be WebKit. I actually forgot yeah. that, yeah, almost forgot that, yeah, like the Chrome, Chrome engine V8 was actually a fork of, 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 yeah. I don't know if V8, I don't know if V8 was actually a fork. I don't know if it was built, but back when Chrome used to use WebKit. But Bling, right? Bling, which I guess, yeah, no. Okay, so is Bling a, a byproduct? Is Bling a by? Blink is based on Web, WebCore, which is the HTML rendering engine inside of WebKit. So Blink was created off of WebCore, but back when Chrome used to use the whole WebKit, engine it used to, it still used to use v8 instead of javascript core it was you were able to plug in whatever javascript engine you wanted which is pretty cool so back when chrome used to use webkit instead of javascript core which was the default javascript engine for webkit chrome used to use a v8 i don't know if it was based off of jobs or they built it from scratch so I think v8 they built it from is scratch so v8 is completely separate yes v8 is completely separate interesting yeah. But then, but V8 is the whole, it's like the backbone of the whole Node.js and Electron, right? No? Exactly, yeah. And JavaScript core, I didn't know until this podcast, Stefan mentioned, is the backbone for Bun, the Bun runtime, which is fairly new. So that's super interesting as well. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. what is the origin of all of this then? Still, I wonder, who was the person who was in charge of these? I wonder, who yeah, was the, the person all, who was... It all comes down to KHTML. Yeah. KHTML, which was built by a company that starts with K as well. KDE, um, yeah. Yeah, Wait, KDE. what? They make a bunch yeah. of desktop stuff. Yes. Yep. It's not a company, right? That's not a company. That is a it's, community. It's a, it's, it's a community slash like company. It's I'm sure, I'm sure it's Plasma is an open source project too, right? But I guess. we have a company. Yeah. Oh, by the way, their the name of their distro, I'm just looking at it right now. No, not distro, sorry. A desktop manager is called Plasma, which is hilarious. But anyway. Okay, oh. so yeah, the whole origin of Chromium and then WebKit all comes from HTML, which is a browser engine developed by the KDE project. KDE, yeah, it's not a company. It, it's more of a project. And it was the default engine for the Conquer browser. Which is the browser from the KDE project, and they used the KHT. They built the KHTML browser engine for their Conqueror browser, and then around 2002, I think, or 2003, around that time in the early 2000s, Apple forked KHTML into WebKit, and then 10 years later, Chromium forked WebKit. Uh, sorry, huh. Google forked WebKit and created Blink, the Blink rendering engine. Yeah. Wow, because I, I remember KDE because I was using Ubuntu 9 and a yeah. bunch of the, I had to make a bunch of VM and KDE, one of, a bunch of KDE VM was very popular back then. I had no idea yeah. who those people are. Now they, that's the history there. Yeah, it's, it's actually interesting. The Conqueror browser was supported until, it was worked on until the year 2016. That's the yeah. year, yeah, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page right now, which is, which is recent, but it lasted for a pretty long time. I haven't really heard of anyone using a browser named Conquer, but this is the origin, the origins of the web and the is, browser engine. Is a Conquer browser, is it supporting like those devices, small device, mobile device? Potentially. On, on the article. Because I know that KDE was very into porting the OS into embedded device. It says Skunker can run on most Unix-like operating systems. 
Okay. I wonder if it's, I remember that name. Yeah, no, there's, it's really cool. They got, they have their own IDE that they've built called KDevelop. They have yep. an email client. I'm just looking at their page right now. And they have, I guess, like their version of GIMP. It's awesome. And I feel like these people are just really passionate about building software. So They're I think what happened back then, yeah. what happened with KDE, based on my memory, is that they have an entire UI layer. So there was GNU and there's KDE. And these two compete. And so they tried to get application building using their kit. You're talking about so, like, they, they, like a desktop, desktop yeah, the manager. Desktop. Not, not even desktop manager, but like the API to build out the desktop. Yeah, I think even the whole desktop too, right? Whole desktop too, because isn't KDE also stand for? What does what is KDE stand for again? K desktop environment, I imagine. Yeah, so desktop, right? So like they would, so I think for each application to work in KDE, they have to rewrite the whole thing to use the KDE kit, the UI kit. Yeah. Spunk. Want to talk about like, Edge? Yeah. Yeah. Some cool news in terms of old browsers. They say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Apparently, Microsoft is teaching Edge, which is a quite a, we don't call it like really a new browser anymore, right? I guess it was new five years ago or something, but now it's pretty established. But yeah, they are trying to experiment with browsers UI. So they have some project called Project Phoenix. And no one knows when it's coming out, but there are some like images that were posted talking about Edge Phoenix and they have some cool features. So one of them is, for example, if you've ever used like one of those fancy like browser extensions that kind of like does cool stuff with your browser, or maybe you've used a browser that has these features already, for example, split view. So you can have two tabs side by side natively in the browser. They have this awesome thing called Tab Center where it gives you insights into where have you been spending most of your time on. It gives you like a little word cloud, things like that. So yeah, like it seems like they are they are trying to more tightly integrate with Windows and at the same time, like show you these cool features and provide these fun things in the browser that just make the browser experience in general better. And I think it goes back to your point, Mo, like, the more competition we have, the better, because I think Edge is doing this to differentiate themselves from Chrome. But at the same time, they're also seeing like these other browsers that are popping up, implement these features, and they're like, okay, we got to step our game up. And if you look at Chrome, it's basically been the same for what, like 10 years? I don't know. Like ever since they introduced tabs, it's just been the exact same. Yeah. The biggest difference, the biggest like new groundbreaking feature that's come out with Chrome are tab groups which allow you to organize your, your tabs in, into color groups, which is really cool. But yeah, Edge is trying to reimagine in their browser. And I really think their motivation for this comes from all the new browsers on the market these days that are also trying to reimagine the browser and reimagine the web and how we use it. For example, like Arc, Sigma OS, DAC, so on. I would say actually, this is not the first time Edge does something brave and bold that differentiates, differentiates itself from Chrome. For example, the sidebar is already a feature in Microsoft Edge, like vertical tabs. I don't know how long that's been a thing, but it's been around for a while. So I'm really happy to see that one okay. of the big companies from one of the you know, big browsers are not afraid to go out and innovate and reimagine their browser's UI. Yeah, I don't know true. if you guys remember, but the, uh, the sidebar tab 
was actually the original design of how tab navigation was, how, of how URL navigation was before the tab was introduced. Before the horizontal tabs, you mean? Before the horizontal tab, it was a vertical list the, of tabs. What we, browser was that? IE, Internet Explorer. Internet Explorer mm. didn't have tabs. Really? I know. It just... What do you mean, didn't have tabs? It, it literally didn't have tabs. Like, I think Chrome came up with that concept. Or yeah, my but Firefox. Then, or... But then, if that, then it will be just a file, right? Isn't it? You click on file to go to different. But it will be, it's not a tab. Yeah, it's a, it's a sidebar where you click on. I think for each window, you can only see one website. You have to open up new windows, at least from what I remember how it was. So I remember you can actually go to a Man. website from the file explorer. Yeah, yeah, you can. There was no like sidebar? Because I vaguely remember there was a sidebar to click link. <laughs> am I am I oh am I talking about the maybe the bookmark bar from there? Oh, I see. It might not be an Internet Explorer, but I did see images. I did once see images of old browsers from the early 2000s that had sidebar tabs. So that was a concept in the early days of yeah, web browsers. Yeah, that was a concept. And then they say that the tab bar supposedly revolutionized the whole kind of switching tab, switching between window and so on. But like with that thought in mind, right? Are we re regressing? Are we regressing the design? Yeah, like, like, like that is an interesting thought. Like, why were horizontal tabs? Why did that win over vertical tabs? And why are now vertical tabs getting more popular again? Is it like what are browsers today like Arc, like Sigma OS, or like Edge and their vertical tab feature? And Vivaldi? Well, I'm not sure if Vivaldi has vertical tabs. What are they doing nowadays? That's that's making it popular again, the vertical sidebar, because if you just think about it, it's a very simple feature. There isn't much like technical innovation you can have with vertical tabs. It's just a list of tabs and you can click around or use your keep number, your arrow keys to go up and down. Other than that, there isn't much like room so for innovation. I have a hypothesis is that nowadays website are five. Website actually directory. You know how when you have file tree? Yeah. Your file tree, for us, naturally, the file tree can be mapped into that tree structure the tree that, that you can, you can drop, have a drop down when you click and you have like tree and tree, like sub, sub branches. Right, right. And to us, from the kid from the 2000, we grow up with file and folder. So we understand that. I think now, but back then, we didn't think too much about you know, like tabs or website tabs or website URL as part of that, as a link tree. But I think now that it become more common that people are browsing the web more than browsing their own file system. Right. You move that, you move, you would map that same concept of the tab now. The tab is your file. You go to a website, it's just going to a file. You wait, but it is, right? You're accessing a file on the internet. Yeah, so my, literally that is what, what's happening. My, my theory, I think there's two components. The first is, oh, you mentioned that there isn't much technical innovation here, but I think the technical innovation is actually outside the browser in the screen. Like our resolution is much higher. Having something occupy that real estate on the left isn't as big of a deal as it used to be. I think the other thing is people like change. People always like change. So if you have tabs on the top, now they're going to be on the left. Oh boy, I feel so cool. I remember yeah. when I saw that Fire Firefox implemented not vertical tabs, but it was vertical, but 
it was more trees, tree structure of mm-hmm. tabs. So you can create a little rabbit hole and it would actually show you that rabbit hole instead of just showing everything linearly. And I thought that was really cool. And like I tried it out for a little bit. And after the novelty factor wore off, I just stopped using it. But I think that there is that element as well, just change. But for me, probably the biggest is going to be that screen real estate. Another hypothesis could be that we just use more web apps these days. So we need that vertical space because with the vertical tabs, you can have a lot more tabs open and versus having the same amount of tabs in a horizontal fashion, it'll look more cluttered. These days we, we like for work, people use five, 10, 15 web apps for communication, for documentation, what have you. And that vertical space allows us to organize our tabs more. And maybe this was just something that was not needed like 10, 15 years ago, because the majority of apps that were used 10, 15 years ago were just like desktop tabs, sorry, desktop apps that lived in your Mac OS dock or your windows app bar on the bottom. But now lots of apps for people live like in the browser as browser tabs. So we need that space. Could be that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's probably, I think it's probably all of the stuff we talked about, right? In some ways. Yeah. No, I think, I don't know. When I hear you guys hypotheses, I'm like, yeah, dude, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like it's everything. Like all of the above. Could be a little bit of everything. Yeah. By the way, I thought, here's my thought. Do you think Edge or Microsoft Edge have this innovation, supposedly an innovation? Do you think they came up with this like when they came up with Edge? Or are they chasing it? They're chasing the same trend with other people. Vertical tabs or anything else? Like the whole Phoenix stuff. Do you think they have this in mind a long time ago and they finally releasing it, like piecing it? Or do you think they they literally just copy the game from other people? I think think that every browser vendor has so many ideas for their browser, but, and they have so many ideas, feature ideas for their browser and different ways they want to take it in. But I think most of the time, there's especially these big companies, they're scared to to innovate in certain areas until other people do it first. So Edge could have had these ideas for a long time. What I'm saying is, I'm sure Chrome has tons of the engineers at Chrome and the project managers at Chrome have tons of ideas as well like this, and as well as Safari and Firefox, Brave, whatever. They all have their own unique ideas. But until they see these niche browsers, the startup browsers starting to go out and actually implement these features, the reimagining of a web browser and starting to see that users actually like it and are using it. I think the biggest backer of this is the Arc web browser. Like they're completely reimagining the browser and everyone's loving it. Microsoft Edge could have seen this and be like, our users will actually like these features that we've been thinking about for a while now. So now they're less scared to, to go and implement them. So it's a mix of, they've had these ideas for a while, but now they're chasing what these more niche browsers are doing. So it could be a little bit of both to answer your question. Very good, Sarah. Yeah, no, definitely. Cool. All right. Do you guys want to move on to talking about a little bit about extensions? Yes, let's do it. Awesome. So one of the things that we noticed when we were browsing Hacker News was this post 
by DK the human. Shout out to DK. He's in our Discord server and send us a lot of love about Plasmo. So appreciate that. But specifically here in the Hacker News post, he mentioned that LinkedIn sent him a cease and desist letter for his Chrome extension. So his Chrome extension makes it easy to automate a lot of kind of tedious tasks that you would have on a lot of different websites. This extension browser flow also supports automating a lot of stuff on LinkedIn and uh, actually also has some guides on how to automate LinkedIn and so on. So LinkedIn sent him, like LinkedIn, the company sent DK a cease and desist telling him like, basically do not do this anymore, get rid of LinkedIn's name and so on and so forth. I had a friend that had something similar happen to him with Facebook. He basically built a extension on top of Facebook and it was literally not popular at all like maybe less than 100 users and he literally got a cease and desist it's insane so i think just one of the i mean we have other examples here as well there's this extension called unfollow everybody and facebook sent them a cease and desist there's this developer henry lim built a chrome extension to automatically open medium articles in incognito mode medium decided to ban his entire account which is insane. So there's a lot of these kind of examples of websites and platforms that are actively hostile to extensions. And I just wanted to talk about that a little bit just to start the conversation, like just talking about LinkedIn. I was blown away by doing a little bit of research on this. LinkedIn seems to have an entire team within the company whose sole job is to detect what extensions are being run on LinkedIn. So presumably they can send them a cease and desist. LinkedIn has JavaScript code that will look for specific extensions by querying their web accessible resources and seeing if there's like a 404, if there's actually like a 200. On top of that, they're actually going to look at the DOM to find IDs and class names of known web extensions so that they can figure out whether these automation extensions exist on the user's DOM. And then they do a lot of other sneaky tricks. Like, I don't think they do this, but one of the things that I also research on detecting Chrome extensions, and I actually implemented this myself and it works, is you can send 500 requests to for the manifest.json and those 500 requests, if that exists, Chrome will go into another code path to tell you like, hey, this is actually not available. You won't see it as a developer. So basically, if the extension exists or if it doesn't, you're going to get the same error as a developer. But Chrome will go to a different code path if the Chrome extension exists or if it doesn't. It'll give you an unauthorized versus a 404. But to you, it's going to look the same. But the time it takes to get the 404 and the time it takes to get the not authorized is different slightly, like a couple of milliseconds. So what you can do is you can figure, you can time it and you can figure out whether it's unauthorized or not. And from there, you can figure out whether the extension was installed or not. So that's like a sneaky kind of like side channel way of figuring out whether an extension exists or not. So it seems mm. like it's impossible to hide yourself as a Chrome extension, unfortunately. But yeah, that's just to start off the topic. We'd love to discuss more about it. I'm struggling with this myself because like their application, LinkedIn is, is built on the web. That is 
and at, at the heart of the web is like openness, right? In the heart of browser extensions is openness, the concept of ha leaving things open and anybody can come in and mess around with your DOM or whatever have you. So that's how one way I see it. But then I understand LinkedIn's perspective from the, this. Maybe they have some sort of business model or something that Chrome, ex uh, like Chrome extensions or specifically automation Chrome extensions gets in the way of, and then that sort of ruins their business model, which a company needs to stay alive. So I'm like at a di dichotomy right now. I'm not really sure whether or not LinkedIn is doing like a bad thing here or not. I think professionally, right? There's no bad or good. A company just do stuff. Like they can send a cease to cease if at will, right? They don't have to worry too much about it. Of course, there's good and bad. What do you mean? In terms of professionally, in terms of this, in, in the case of LinkedIn, like, for example, if someone LinkedIn, right? Sure, the data is contributed voluntarily by the user, but it is still within the property, right? The LinkedIn, the website. So if the extension can do whatever they want on LinkedIn, LinkedIn should have, LinkedIn can have, can do whatever they want, right? On their end too. And they can send whatever seats they, they wish. So I don't think there's any bad, good or bad kind of practice. Mm -hmm. I think it's really about whether the, whether each side, I think it's a battle. I think it's like a fight between the well, two sides. Well, I meant good and bad in terms of the openness of the web. And yeah, like, like the spirit, are they following the spirit of the web? Should, right. Like, they, should they have to care? Should they have to care about that? Right? Because well, it's so the, model. The, the question isn't like whether they should care. It's, and it's not about the business model. It's about the precedent that they're sending to the web. Like they send shockwaves to all the other websites. And there is a sense of, there's a sense of what's the right word. If LinkedIn does this, right. Then that, that kind of makes it easier for other websites to do this. And there should be a moral pressure on these websites to not do things like this, right? It's not, I think what's really important, for example, like a website can, can like extract all the data from you and everything like that. But because we have societal pressure on a lot of these kinds of websites, they're doing that less and they're trying to incorporate other business models. So yeah, at the end of the day, a website can do whatever it wants, like within the bounds of the law, but so can a person. But we have societal pressure that forces that person to behave in a way that society deems acceptable. And in the same way, we should do that and we should hold these websites to a high standard so that they uphold the spirit of the open web and things like in that. My, that's, I think that's what good and bad here means. In my opinion, moral, upholding moral, never, you never, you can never do that with cooperation. If you want up to listen, you have to enact into a law. Until GDPR, nobody cared to put con to put the cookie consent, and they do it in the most malicious way. The cookie consent was one of the worst thing that came out of the whole GDPR, so that it annoyed the whole consumer. So consumers are even against their own GDPR sure. right. So what we're talking about here isn't like whether that is a thing that like companies should need to have like these laws and stuff, but rather like the meta question behind that, we have those laws because we deemed those things as being bad that the companies were doing. So in the same way, do you deem what LinkedIn is doing now is bad or good? And if the case is bad, 
then okay, we can have laws and stuff like that in the future. But right now we're talking about just starting the conversation, right? Is this a good thing or a bad thing that LinkedIn's doing? Yeah, when we say good and bad here, it's within the scope of what we're talking about, which is web and the open web. I think if that wasn't part of the equation, then what they're doing is completely fine by all standards. But we're just talking about good and bad for, for the web as a whole. And for that, it's, it's not a good thing. But can I can I offer like a devil's advocate position on this? Yeah, I think. So one, one of the things that I was thinking about here with LinkedIn specifically, Lewis and I spoke about this a couple of days ago, not necessarily about LinkedIn, but just in general, like, Mo, you play Rocket League, right? Yeah. Imagine someone had a bot that they hooked up to Rocket League when you're playing against them, and then they crush you every single time. You wouldn't find that fun, right? No, like but to be fair, yeah, I never it, find it Rocket League fun. It always pisses me off. Oh, there you go. That's another story. But yeah, like I think in the same way, right? All these automation tools are just like that. And the multiplayer game you're playing is LinkedIn. And if people are like automating the hell out of LinkedIn, out of their accounts, constantly sending you spam, constantly liking things when it's just automated, sending mm -hmm. follow-ups that are automated, like that platform becomes terrible. It's just full of bots. If you're playing right. a video game full of bots, like you're going to stop playing. I think it's the same with LinkedIn. This could be what I was bringing up earlier. This could, this could be also, it's ruining the sort of the business model of LinkedIn. Maybe LinkedIn wants you to actually be physically present on a web page. Maybe they have some ads or they want you to be physically present so that the network well, effect kicks in. So that you go post from other people, you follow other people and stuff like that. That's what I was trying to bring up earlier. And that's why I'm like struggling to, to see whether or not this is a right or wrong. Because link, at the end of the day, LinkedIn as a company and have their certain goals and metrics they, they want right. to achieve. And browser automation extension it could be getting in, in the way of that. So right? I don't know, but I'm just saying. In my opinion, sure, to the internet spirit and to freedom, to the morality of the internet, the spirit of the free internet, right? The original spirit of the free internet, then they have somewhat violating this kind of, this principle, right? Of being, hey, let you do whatever you want with the data on, that you can see in your screen. But I think that as a business, what they did, to their credit, I'm pretty sure that whoever filed the CS and the CIS is probably one of the legal guys, right? They probably went through a bunch of paper to understand that, yeah. We, they are on the right ground to do those kind of stuff. If they deem you're bad, in, if the entire legal system think you're bad, might as well. It's better to know you're bad under their light so that to do it in a way that undetectable, I would say, is what I, is my line of thought. Because if you have to dodging it with the morality, sure, then maybe you would, you, eventually you succumb to this. Either you have to dialogue with them or you have to succumb to their, to all their kind of like, which like season this is for a while. Or just be pirate, be a pirate. Be, do it better. I don't know, make extension that undetectable. Be hacker. I don't know. I, I, that's my, my hacker mindset. All right. Well, that was the episode. I hope you enjoyed and we'll see you guys next week. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.